Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode five in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 4th of March. And Leon, we've got Adrian Loveney of Cuscal talking about a revolution in bank payment systems. Well, that's right. Uh, Cuscals is a payments provider and... He has a fascinating view of how the whole payment system is transforming. And, uh, yeah, let's have a chat to him. And then after that, we've got Stephen Kukoulis. And Stephen Kukoulis will talk to us all about Australia's latest GDP numbers. Good o. Well, here's Adrian. We're talking to Adrian Loveney, who's the General Manager of Product and Service at Cuscal. Not everybody knows what Cuscal is, but in fact, it's a provider of end-to-end payment solutions, and it works with Australian banks, um, outfits like Auspost and stuff like that. It owns a ready uh, ATM network. It's the second largest in Australia, and uh, it does the switching and acquiring services for about a third of Australia's ATMs. So it's a big outfit and knows a lot of things. So welcome, Adrian. A new payments platform. Uh, this is going to fill a long-felt want in uh, Australian banking. You're going to be able to do payments instantly, I think. Could you start by telling us where it came from, what it what it will do when it's launched next year? Sure, sure. So, so you know, the Australian payment system, um, you know, has achieved a lot and is is seen seen around the world as a as a relatively uh, you know sophisticated. Um, functional payment system. Uh, you know, if you if you look, for example, uh, at the use of contactless transactions in Australia, um, there are two thirds of the transactions that we conduct today uh, will be contactless transactions, uh, and and that that shift has uh, has occurred in in less than three years. So Australians enjoy access, uh, relatively speaking, to a a modern, you know, well-functioning payment system that they rely upon. But, but innovation inside that system has has largely been a series of uh, of small, continuous improvements over many years. Uh, and and also the the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is again, um, comparatively speaking to other central banks around the world, is is relatively interventionist in the payment system. So, uh, you know, unlike other systems in the US and in Europe, uh, the, the, the RBA in Australia is, is not shy of, of articulating where it wants to see improvements in the payment system. And, and for example, uh, the, the Reserve Bank of Australia's uh, made various interventions, uh, notably in areas like surcharging on credit cards, uh, the level of interchange rates that are set in in the credit card and debit card system, as well as Australia's ATM system, so they're they're not they're not short of uh, uh, of regulatory powers to to provoke the industry along, uh, and and they've used them uh, on on half a dozen occasions in the last ten years. So in about 2010, the RBA uh, published a, a paper uh, and outlined uh, its view of what it thought a modern Payment system should look like, and it made a it made a number of observations uh, about the payment system in Australia. It said uh, that that it thought uh, that 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 in an environment where you could send an email around the world instantly, that that it was reasonable to expect that businesses and consumers could make a real time 
uh, payment uh, with close to immediate funds availability you know, by about the end of 2016. The, the second observation it made was about the amount of data that could be transmitted with a payment. So most people, when they're used to sending a payment, know that they can they can have about, about 20 to 25 characters to put some descriptive information about the payment. And the RBA said that's nowhere near enough. So it thought that, again, you should have the ability to send a lot more data together with a payment, uh, you know, in, in near real time. The, the third observation it made was, why is the banking system only open Monday to Friday and, and only open from kind of eight o'clock to six o'clock? Um, you know, what happens if I want to send money quickly overnight or if I want to send money on a weekend? And it thought that in a modern economy, uh, that the banking system and the payment system should be open 24 seven. And lastly, the fourth observation it made was that these things called BSBs and account numbers, which were, which were a relic of the, the the day when your account was held at your local branch. So you you'd go to the Commonwealth Bank, you'd open up a bank a bank branch a bank account rather at your local Commonwealth Bank, and that BSB or branch. Uh, bank state branch number would would remain with you for the rest of your life while you had that bank account and in order for me to send you money I'd need to know your BSB and your account number and the RBA so also said you know what why is that and why can't I use things that I know about you uh, that are that are more logical like your email address or your phone number if I want to send you money so the RBA laid down the gauntlet in 2010 and said um, you know, we think that these these four things are gaps that we observe in the payment system. Uh, and if bluntly, if the banks don't agree with us and don't move to fill those gaps by about 2016, then we'll intervene. We'll pull out our big stick uh, and we'll 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 kind of wield our regulatory powers and and force you to build it, or perhaps even build it ourselves. So the banking sector. Uh, got together in kind of 20, 2012, 2013 and said, well, how do we set about building a new system uh, that, uh, that, that meets those objectives? And, and that's where the MPP came from. And Cuskell's got partners in this, the big four banks and a bunch of others. Does that mean that problems ahead of you in the legacy systems, the banks are not all the same, and, and in getting a common ground, is that a problem? Look, banks in Australia do cooperate around payments, um, and, and they cooperate around organisations like APCA, the Australian Payments Clearing Association, and they cooperate around things like recently, um, you know, you, you may have heard that, that we've moved from uh, paper-based processing of checks to digital processing of checks, even though that's a legacy payment system. So the banks in Australia have got a strong track record around collaboration. Another area that we collaborate is around fraud prevention because that hurts all banks in Australia. So th there is some history of collaboration, but it's fair to say um, that nothing folks the mind uh, like the threat uh, of, of a regulator coming in and, and threatening to build it themselves. And certainly with a, with, a, with a bit of cajoling and a bit of encouragement, a bit of gentle encouragement, the banking sector uh, has got to where it is today with the MPP. And, and I'd make a few quick observations about the MPP. Firstly, um, it, you know, it's, it's uniquely Australian in, in, in its makeup, and there are a number of things about it that are quite different. Uh, it's a completely greenfields build. So we're not touching any of the legacy infrastructure. We're building a brand new uh, piece of infrastructure to do this payment system for us. The second is is that there are there are two main standards that are used in transmitting payments information. There's the old 
card-based standard that we use for credit cards and debit cards today. And there's a newer standard, uh, which is a much more data-rich standard called the ISO 222 standard. And, and the Australian payment system will be using the ISO standard uh, as part of its Greenfields build. Um, the third thing uh, that's, that's, um, that's unique about the payment about the the NPP uh, is that that rather than uh, transactions uh, being settled uh, later in the day, which is what happens now for all of the payment systems, every payment that is made between a bank and a bank's customers will be settled in near real time. So whether that's a a, a two million dollar property settlement or a two dollar forty cup of coffee. Uh, the money will flow between the, the exchange settlement accounts that are held by the Reserve Bank in real time rather than, say, later uh, at three o'clock in the morning as happens today. And the fourth thing that's, that's new about the NPP is this concept of an overlay service. So, so what we're really building, um, you know, with this new piece of infrastructure, is is infrastructure that joins, connects most of the most of the major banks in Australia and Cuscal. Uh, and I, I like to think about it as a set of rails. Um, what will come later are a set of, of overlay services that, that that people can bring to the marketplace and that can sit on top of those rails, and they can be used for different things like person-to-person -person payments. Uh, or say a, a property conveyancing or settlement of stock purchases, you know, a, a range of different kind of commercial services that might be dreamt, dreamt up by people over the next 10 or 20 years will all have the ability to sit on top of this infrastructure that we're building uh, and be used for, for those purposes. So now you say um, the NPP is uh, uniquely Australian, but one would think that in the future you're going to look at developing this real-time payment system with international banking organisations. Would that be on the radar you know, probably well ahead? Possibly. So so the international banks, um, you know, we, we are we are connected uh, today through through a system called SWIFT, um, that is that is a, an international payments network that most of the banks in the world are, are part of. So there is obviously that connection now, but that's mostly used for, for, for large payments, for institutional payments. It's not used for retail payments. And, uh, and, and in the retail consumer-facing part of the world, you know, credit card uh, do a pretty good job of, of facilitating inter-country payments using, you know, the Visa and MasterCard international networks. For the moment, I think what we're seeing is, uh, you know, we're seeing real-time payment systems in, in England uh, and Singapore uh, and India uh, and, and rumours of them being developed in the United States and, of course, in Australia. Um, and, and I think it's possible in time that you'll see those hubs joined up, which will facilitate real-time payments uh, internationally uh, at the retail level, but for the moment, very much a country-by-country -country proposition. Adrian Lovely, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Yes, fascinating, Leon. We're going to finally get instant payments, even internationally, in a couple of years. Um, the system in Australia, as Adrian says, comes in next year and is going to be absolutely fantastic. And the payments will happen instantaneously. Yep, and you can do it individual to individual or to uh, retailers, banks, wherever you like. That's going to change everything. It will. No more three-day delays in That's clearances. Right. Fascinating interview, and I, I really strongly recommend people listen to this over and over and over again. All right, now Stephen Kukoulis. Stephen Kukoulis, the Australia's GDP came in much better than expected at 0.6% uh, and 3.03%. Can you explain that? 
Oh, I'm not sure if I can, but <laughs> look, it, it's being driven by the things that we don't get a lot of partial information about. And I'll just clarify that because we do get regular information on exports, on commodity prices, on stock markets. And of course, we've all been uh, seeing bad news in most of those areas. And I think that's clouded the perception that the economy hasn't been doing well. Where we don't get a lot of regular economic updates is things like um, household spending on services, you know, education, healthcare, uh, holiday travel. They, we don't get a regular update from the Bureau of Statistics on how much money we're spending on those sorts of things, nor do we get regular updates on how much the government is spending. You know, we don't get a regular weekly or monthly government spending update, if you know what I mean. If you look at where the GDP uh, upside surprises were, I suppose, it was in household consumption and spending on services, and it was in government demand. So the now that I've had a chance to look through the numbers, you can sort of see where the uh, forecasting errors were, and that was in information that we just didn't have. Uh, and it's confirming that maybe those job numbers that we saw you know, late last year, which were, were sort of flummoxing most analysts with their strength, maybe they were correct. And this GDP of 3% is, um, is validating the strong employment numbers. It's quite remarkable. I mean, all the uh, economists have been tipping rises of, say, at the most, 0.5%, 0.3%. Everyone was surprised by it. Yes, and there were downgrades too because the, the, the numbers just in the last few days, you know, we do get the building blocks, if you like, of GDP in the week leading up to you know, the, the, the GDP result. Things like private capital expenditure, you know, the business investment numbers, they were dreadful when they came out last week. Things like new construction, they were also weak. And I think that that fed into this perception that you know, maybe the momentum of the economy was not good, that um, you know, we would be seeing a downside risk to the GDP result. And, and, and maybe with that, I heard some analysts suggesting too that the employment numbers would also correct weaker uh, to reflect you know, what were seemingly uh, too strong to be true sort of results for employment. But yeah, we have seen um, yeah, the, maybe the, those numbers being validated. I think yeah, without being unkind to the people of, you know, who, who've got the forecast wrong, myself included, you know, it, there, it's always important to remember that there is more to the economy than just this regular monthly run of you know, a bit of retail sales here and commodity prices here and the stock market there. You know, there's a lot more to, to the economy. And I think this is where the RBA has been a lot more measured and a lot more sober, if I could use that word, in, in analysing the economy and being, you know, uh, I won't say they're upbeat, but they've certainly been relatively upbeat to some of the pessimistic calls that have been out there in the uh, in the markets. I, still, it was surprising. I mean, Australia, the, we just went through the profit season and the ABS figures show that profits were actually down in yes. this half. And, uh, and as well as that... Uh, Dun and Bradstreet did a survey, and you were talking about that, where business confidence has taken a hit because of all the financial market ructions and the yes. uh, uh, uncertainty about policy in the lead up to the federal election. Uh, look, Leon, I think you've touched on a really um, interesting point, like economics always is. A lot of this concern, and including the, the Dun and Bradstreet uh, dip in business expectations and some of this other. Uh, softness, softness that's occurred in things like uh, house price growth and stock markets, the bulk of that has been post-January. It's been since the start of the new year. Here we are in early March, and these numbers that we saw on GDP are for the December quarter, don't forget. So this is the average of October, November, and December. And here we are in early March. And I guess, the, the, and this is where 
I, oh gosh, economics is always a, an evolving debate. But right now, I think we're going to be seeing the debate uh, change a little and to be focusing more on, well, okay, maybe the economy did end 2015 in reasonably good shape. Yeah, maybe the RBA was right, but what's the big question for 2016? You know, have we kicked off on bad news? And heaven forbid, I won't quite yet forecast what the March quarter GDP result will be. We'll get that in three months' time. But, you know, maybe the March quarter GDP result will be the one that's a little bit weaker. You know, reflecting this dip in business confidence and sort of a you know, sideways movement in consumer sentiment and, of course, all these market ructions that we've been talking about. So, you know, these numbers, remember, are for the year to, to the end of December. Here we are in March. And while I never discount the GDP numbers, they are full of lots of information about the economy. You've got to remember that they are issued a long time after the end of the period and a lot's happened since the 31st of December. Uh, very interesting, your comments about the RBA. The RBA, of course, this week left interest rates on hold, but they kind of signalled they might be cutting it later in the year. Yes, and you've got to remember too that um, the inflation numbers and the wages numbers, you know, the two really important things that the RBA look at when they're trying to determine, well, obviously actual inflation, but also where the inflation pressures down the track might be coming, and that's usually through pressures on wages, are both running at very low levels. You know, the CPI uh, in headline terms is below 2%. Wages growth has dropped to around about 2 2.1% as well. So we've got no pressure there. So I guess what the RBA is trying to signal and trying to sort of massage expectations uh, in the community is that you know, if, if some of these ructions that we're seeing in China and uh, global markets do actually come to hurt the economy, then given that inflation is so very low and is likely to stay very low for the next couple of quarters, um, yeah, they, they could cut if need be. And certainly the market's still pricing in uh, the, the possibility of an interest rate cut in the next three to six months. But, you know, numbers like this make that much less likely. And yeah, who knows, maybe we'll get through um, the next six, 12 months with interest rates being on hold every single month. Every single month. That's interesting. And, uh, of course, uh, in the US, uh, the markets have already factored in that the Fed won't raise interest rates at all this year. Indeed. This is, in fact, the, um, uh, the, the washback, if you like, to our sentiment and our business confidence sort of measures that um, the, the numbers have been uh, mediocre, I suppose. Yeah, the, the employment numbers in the US are still OK. And some of these... Um, uh, servicing uh, managers in indices, indexes, have been okay as well. But it's this, it's this just general concern about the lack of uh, sufficient growth to cause inflation to increase that's caused the market to really, and the Fed itself, I'm sure, to really reassess what will happen to US interest rates. And I think you know, the futures market now, you know, aside from the you know, daily volatility in the, in the numbers, is basically uh, suggesting that the Fed will be on hold all of this year. You know, occasionally it sort of thinks they might hike a bit. But, hey, the other thing to recall, and this is something that I'm paying really close attention to, is some evidence, but I don't want to get uh, prematurely excited by this, but some evidence that commodity prices might be ticking up a little bit. They might have bottomed. Yeah, iron ore is at $50 a tonne. Oil is at about $34 a barrel. And that's up about, you know, 15% from yeah, that yeah. big low. So if commodity prices keep kicking up, that's great news for Australia. Stuka Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, yes, yeah, the GDP numbers 
came in uh, much better than expected. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, we're now growing at 3%. But as Stephen said, uh, this is only from October to December. And, of course, the beginning of the year was a bit of a crisis. Yep. And so let's see what happens then. And, of course, at the same time, um, national income is low. People's payments are, are very low. So, you know, it's not that good. Yeah, no, it's not good. And, of course, the housing prices continue to rise. That's right. Okay, now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, first of all, China officially announced plans to lay off 1.8 million workers in the coal and steel industry. The news coincides with Chinese manufacturing deteriorating more sharply than expected, with the Purchasing Managers Index falling from 49.4 to 49, well below market expectations. And as a result, Moody's has cut China's credit rating to negative from stable. So that's a bit of a worry, Gary. It is, yeah, unless China says that Moody's are just part of the warmongering American attack on China. Yeah, but still, it's it's a bit of a worry that uh, the, the the bottom line, though, is that their manufacturing is contracting. Yes. There, this has to be 1.8 million workers being laid. That has to be the biggest layoff in history. Yeah, I'll say it is. I mean, but as a percentage of 1.6 billion, it's true. not huge. No, no, that's true. That's true. That's true. Now, uh, Mervyn King, who headed the Bank of England uh, from 2003 to 2013, has warned that another financial crisis is certain and will come sooner rather than later. And he's claimed that 2008 crisis was a fault of the financial system, not individual greedy bankers in his new book, The End of Alchemy, Money, Banking and the Future of the Global Economy. And King said that without understanding the crash, politicians and bankers are not going to be able to prevent another crash. And he lays the blame at the door of a broken financial system. And he says spending imbalances both within and between countries led to the crisis in 2008. And he believes a current disequilibrium will lead to the next one. And to solve the problem, he says we have to raise productivity and reform the whole banking system. And so far we haven't seen any of that so that's a bit of a warning yeah and it's going to be very difficult to reform the banking system simply because of the way the banks operate that's right now to australia and with a july double dissolution election look like an increasing certainty the turnbull government is working towards an early april tax statement outlining plans for income tax cuts funded primarily by some changes to negative gearing superannuation tax concession cutbacks and pruning workplace expenses and there's a widespread recognition within the government now that it left the public tax debate unoccupied for too long. It's no choice now but to deliver a comprehensive statement before the budget. And of course, the whole budget might go out if there's a double disillusion election. Um, now, there's only one more sitting week of Parliament beginning on March 14, and the government is unlikely to release it then, which means the release is likely to be slotted in after the political calendar slows down over Easter. And Strategist wants to steady and lock not just the government's political line on tax, but also its wider message as a push towards the election campaign intensifies. So let's just watch that space. But at the same time, Gary, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott is now in a civil war with Malcolm Turnbull yeah. and he's raised the temperature inside the coalition over tax reform by calling on Malcolm Turnbull to make tough decisions to cut spending if he wants to fund tax cuts and Abbott who was Prime Minister opposed tinkering with superannuation negative gearing the GST told Tuesday's weekly coalition party room meeting on Tuesday that the only credible way to reduce taxes is to reduce spending yeah brilliant isn't he yeah and of course uh, the 2014 budget killed him and it was such as it was you know such as it was but, uh, but anyway as I said there's no now civil war going on, which is not a good look for a government heading towards a double dissolution. And you wonder about party solidarity. I mean, you've got the you've got a shark in the in the tadpole pool. That's right. Now, um, the uh, latest 
data shows that consumer prices eased this way this month. The latest Melbourne Institute monthly inflation gauge fell by 0.2% in January after a rise of 0.4%. And in the 12 months to February, the inflation gauge is up 2.1% versus 2.3% level it was in the 12 months to January. And data shows a 5.6% fall in petrol, 3.7% reduction in the price of holiday accommodation and travel, partly offset by 0.6% rise in furnishings, household equipment and services, and 0.2% increase in housing. And as a result of all this, the RBA on Tuesday left the cash rate at its record low of 2% for the ninth board meeting in a row. And as Stephen Coolis said uh, to us before, he expects this will be like this for the next few months. Yeah, probably even to the end of the year. Now, um, Gary, mining is no longer Australia's biggest export earning. The value of the nation's farm production is tipped to pass $60 billion next financial year for the first time. Farm exports are expected to surge by about $45 billion, according to a report from the Australian Bureau of Agriculture and Resource Economics. Beef and veal exports will be the nation's biggest agricultural export earner in 2016-17, with exports valued at $8.8 billion. Wheat exports are tipped to be the second biggest agricultural export earning, with export volumes up slightly, and total volume of 5.6 billion and australia might have hopped off the sheep's back years ago but exports of australian wool are forecast to rise handsomely in 2016-17 up 7 percent to 3.7 billion and this report is also a reminder of the crucial role of agriculture in the national economy in the wake of the downturn in the mining industry and i might add gary by way of comparison australia's iron ore exports are tipped to be 47.2 billion this financial year which is down 13.5 percent now um uh, as i said farm farm production exports will be 60 billion Versus forty seven point five, forty seven point two of iron ore. Yeah, one of the one of the problems and it's political is uh, China is seeking to buy up as much as it can purchase of the biggest dairy company in Tasmania. That's right. That's which we discussed last week. We the Van Diemen's Land Company. Yes, yes, yes. And this potentially it's uh, international relations sensitivity in this between uh, Australia and China. Now, the other big piece of news, Gary, and this is huge, this will have enormous industrial relations and political implications, huge implications for business, is that the Maritime Union of Australia members have voted to start merger negotiations with the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union, which is another militant union, and that will create Australia's most powerful and militant union. Businesses expressed concerns about the planned MUA-CFMEU merger and have called for the government to step in with a public interest test. And uh, Employment Minister Michaela Cash also expressed concern, but she stopped short of committing the government to take any action. Yeah, well, say Woolies and Coles wanted to merge into one company, they wouldn't be allowed to. Well, that's it. this is exactly the same argument the business is putting forward. Yeah, and I think it's right. I mean, why hand control of the national economy to two unions that are known to be the most militant in the country? Bear in mind, too, that these unions are going to have a massive war chest. The um, MUA has got a load of cash. That's right. That's right. So just watch that space. They will be campaigning against any industrial relations changes. So let's just watch that space. Now, uh, loan growth in the housing investor market has dipped to its lowest pace in almost two years after the bank's toughened credit policy and raised interest rates for property investors in 2015. And figures from the RBA showed the slowdown in lending to property investors continued in January, though owner-occupiers owner are picking up much of a the total value of all outstanding mortgages increased by 7.3% in the year to January, compared with 7.4%. But within this trend, there's been a big shift in lending towards owner-occupiers and a big slowdown in lending to property investors. And the RBA says the value of housing investor loans grew by 0.3% in the month and 7.9% in the year to January. And that's the slowest annual rise for the segment since 
February 2014. Now, Gary, we talked a lot about profits in the last few weeks, and according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, uh, company sales profits and inventories nosedived in the December quarter last year. Quite a worry. Now, the value of inventories was down 0.4%. Not surprisingly, mining profits fell sharply, crashing 0.6.2%, leaving year on profit year on profits down 15%. Profits for non-mining companies were down 1.5% after a flat third quarter. And the main weakness in the mining sector was in wholesale, which fell 6.8%. Retail trading profits fell 6.4%. And so that's a bit of a worry. Also, in the lead up to the election and with all the market turmoil, businesses are more pessimistic about the next three months. According to the latest uh, Dun & Bradstreet's uh, business expectations surveys, business expect sales profits and employment capital investments decline compared to the previous and compared to the previous quarter. And expectations for all these areas are at the lowest point in two years. And in particular, profit expectations are at the lowest point since 2012. And sales and employment forecasts are also slumped. And investment has also slipped. On the other hand, the Australian Industry Group's performance of manufacturing index jumped in February to its highest level in more than five years because of a low dollar and the activity gauge increased two points to 53.5 percent 53.5 points that's the strongest level since july 2010 yeah but of course the dollar's on its way up it's almost 73 today that's right that's right and uh that is it's almost 73 today because australia's gdp was higher than expected came in at 0.6 percent as we discussed with uh, Stephen coolis and it's three percent for the year that makes australia one of the top-growing economies in the world. Which Scott Morrison was very quick to point out. That's right, absolutely. Now, uh, the government on Tuesday also unveiled a package of changes that scraps regulation in place since the 1990s, devises and devised before the introduction of the internet and pay TV for uh, media ownership. And the changes are expecting to unleash a raft of mergers and acquisitions with metropolitan broadcasters eyeing off regional affiliations. affiliations. And that's because the so-called REACH rule, which prohibits a proprietor from controlling commercial television licenses, collectively reach more than 75% of the population will be scrapped. So too will the two out of three rule, which prevents a proprietor from controlling more than two out of three radio, television, newspapers in the one commercial radio license area. Yeah, all of which I think is very logical because Australian media is under threat from the international media and, uh, you know, you only have to look at um, newspapers are declining and possibly disappearing. That's right. And finally, Gary, the profit season has drawn to a close. So the last of the company reports came in and there were some abdoozies. Slater and Gordon posted a net loss of $958.3 million for the December half. That's down from a profit of $49.3 million, And they're in deep, deep trouble. That'll teach them to buy in a British law firm. That's right. Murray Goldburn Cooperative's net profit fell, 9.28, fell to $9.28 million in six months because of uh, the falling milk price. Galileo Japan Trust reported an enormous surge in net profit to $27.7 million for the first half from uh, $2.8 million the year before. Recall Holdings after tax profit um, slumped $16.7 million for the six months ending December 31st. Fleetwood Corp posted a December half net loss of uh, $5.1 million, down from a profit of $3.9 million. Bought Longyear reported a net loss of uh, $326.3 million for the year uh, ended December 31st. Appen's full year net profit soared 414% from the previous year to $8.3 million. Cash Converters reported a profit of $15.3 
4.9 million for the half year compared to a loss of 5.3 million so they swung back into the black and Freedom Fruits reported a December half profit slump of 58% to 23.4 million and that's it good oh yeah again a mixed bag yeah where the pawn shop makes more money that's right that's right the cash converters yes that's right much better than uh, Slater and Gordon and 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 that's it for this week Gary and uh, in the meantime you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at Talking Biz B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook and uh, next week we've got a fantastic edition of the Talking Business we've been talking to Kerry Lee Sinclair from QSR International yep that's going to be very interesting in the meantime stay safe and we'll talk to you next week